Welcome to Finding Medina, Episode 9, Artifacts at Last. I'm Brandon Seal. On July 27th, 1813, President Governor Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara of the First Republic of Texas, who over the previous year had raised a multi-ethnic army, negotiated foreign backing for his cause, issued a Declaration of Independence, promulgated a constitution, and three times defeated a better-trained, better-equipped royalist army, including as recently as a month ago at the Battle of Alasan Creek, was deposed. Worse, he was deposed by the junta that he had personally appointed just a few months before. The junta was meant to perform the duties of a legislative branch and to hold certain checks against executive authority. But the fact that Gutierrez de Lara's own appointees voted unanimously to remove him showed how quickly and how wildly the political situation had spun out of his control. The five San Antonians and two Americans on the junta replaced him with a dashing young Spaniard named José Álvarez de Toledo, whose principal service to the cause so far had been in the form of writing newspaper articles from east of the Sabine River. So what in the world happened here? And who in the world was Toledo? 35-year-old José Álvarez Toledo came from a wealthy Spanish family in Cuba and had attended the Royal Naval Academy back in Spain. He briefly served on a Spanish frigate, but soon abandoned a military career to take a seat in the Spanish parliament. He struggled there to find his faction in the turbulent world of Napoleonic Spain and fled around 1811 to the even more turbulent New World. Upon meeting Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara in the winter of 1811 in Philadelphia, he became, like many others who met Gutierrez de Lara, a follower, and you will sometimes see him described as his chief of staff. When Gutierrez de Lara crossed the Sabine with the Republican Army of the North in August of 1812, however, Toledo stayed behind, first in Philadelphia, then later in Natchitoches, Louisiana. At some point along the way, he began to believe that Gutierrez de Lara was unfit to command this uprising. Or perhaps more accurately, Toledo began to believe that he himself was more fit to lead it, despite his having never commanded troops in battle, or, as best I can tell, having ever set foot in Texas. From that point onward, however, he committed himself to writing letters and publishing editorials critical of Gutierrez de Lara's every move. He played up the executions of Governor Salcedo and his officers. He claimed that Gutierrez de Lara had no intention of ever paying his soldiers. And he made sure to highlight to certain U.S. agents Gutierrez de Lara's repeated affirmation of Texas's independence from all foreign powers. Toledo set out for San Antonio around July of 1813. He sent ahead messages to the junta asserting his rightful place as the new commander of the Republican Army of the North based on a commission letter he had secured from a provisional congress in central Mexico and on letters of support from U.S. agents. When they first received these messages, the junta stood by Gutierrez de Lara. When they heard of Toledo's approach to San Antonio, they placed several conditions on his entry into the city, most significant of which was that Toledo would serve under Gutierrez de Lara's command and that Toledo must take any soldiers accompanying him back to the United States once independence had been finally won. Displeased, Toledo responded with threats 
to take all of the American volunteers and artillery in the Republican Army back to the United States. Gutierrez de Lara attempted to remain in command. Something is missing from the historical record here to fully explain why it was so easy for Toledo to march in from afar and push aside the man who had led the Republican Army to victory so repeatedly over the previous year. If I'm being generous to Toledo, I suppose I should confess here that various different accounts all do seem to indicate that he had a certain charisma of his own. That's a little hard for me to square with Toledo's known backstabbing and backroom smear campaigns, and it's not a particularly scientific explanation of what happened, but the young man clearly had an aura. Even Gutierrez de Lara had been seduced by it at their first meeting, describing him as a man of, quote, great talents, end quote. Carlos Beltran, another volunteer in San Antonio, described how, quote, his elegant manners, stately military bearing, and fine personal appearance won the respect and confidence of a major part of the troops, end quote. And José Antonio Navarro as well, similarly described Toledo as, quote, affluent in speech, pleasing personality, skillful, of gentle manly demeanor, and very obsequious. With this multitude of fascinating qualities, he immediately captured the hearts and goodwill of the army and the inhabitants of San Antonio, end quote. For all that the men of the Republican Army of the North despised Gachupines, they still seemed to be easily impressed by them. It probably helped, too, that Toledo was extremely wealthy and may have offered his own resources to the perpetually underfunded Republican cause. On July 27, 1813, the San Antonio Junta made their final decision, casting their lot with Toledo and deposing Gutierrez de Lara as leader of their government. On August 1st, Toledo entered triumphantly into San Antonio. In what was, perhaps, Gutierrez de Lara's final display of his commitment to the cause and the army that he had raised, he didn't fight the vote of his junta or stick around to cause problems for the Republican Army's new commander. He accepted the decision, gathered his family, and by August 6th was on the road to Louisiana. The change at the top was not uncontroversial, however. After meeting Toledo, Colonel Miguel Menchaca told Carlos Beltran, quote, sus pensamientos indican perfidia, end quote. His true thoughts suggest treachery. Toledo's first initiatives as commander did nothing to dispel this notion. Ever the Spaniard, he couldn't resist the temptation to reorganize the army along strictly ethnic lines, splitting Tejanos and Americans into separate companies. This sapped the cohesion of the army, which was already divided over the change in leadership and the political intrigue surrounding it. In early August, word reached the Republicans that Arredondo's Royalist Army had rendezvoused with the remnants of Colonel Elizondo's force and was marching north up the Laredo Road. By around August 10th, they had crossed the Frio River. Ignoring his officers' recommendations, Toledo refused the entire time to harass the Royalist line of march, infuriating the Tejanos under his command who were accustomed to the quick-strike tactics of plains warfare. Toledo seemed to prefer to wait for Arredondo to come to him, perhaps even to fortify San Antonio and make his stand there. Eventually, as Arredondo's army drew closer, his Tejanos forced a council of war upon him. In front of Toledo, and all the officers of the Republican Army, 
Colonel Menchaca made his case for riding out to meet the Spaniards in the field. He wasn't going to let Arredondo bring the war to his people and their homes. Plus, the Republican army had already defeated three Spanish armies in the field, without Toledo's help, Menchaca might have noted, by taking the fight to the enemy, not by waiting for him. The commander of the American contingent, Major Henry Perry, eventually came around as well, it seems. With his officers united now in their pleas to march out, Toledo finally gave in. On or around August 15, 1813, Toledo finally ordered the Republican Army of the North to march south and to set an ambush for the Royalists just the other side of the Medina River. In addition to having a lot in common with a love of history, working in the energy business also exposes one to some of the best food in South Texas. And Kathy Rodriguez Brown, in addition to her other entrepreneurial endeavors, ran one of the best burger joints south of San Antonio. From the moment I met Kathy Brown back in episode 3 at her restaurant off of 281 called Home Plate Burgers, I could tell she was an impressive woman. In addition to being a licensed realtor, owner of a bookstore, and manager of a Geico insurance office, Kathy is the inventor of chocolate tamales, chocolatetamales.net. At their peak, her chocolate tamales were carried by dozens of restaurants, appeared on national television eight times, and were favorites of Dolly Parton, Chubby Checker, Eva Longoria, and then-Governor George W. Bush. As we also mentioned back in Episode 3, Kathy Brown counts Benustiano Carranza and Jose Antonio Navarro among her ancestors, many of whom have lived near the Bear Atascosa line now since at least the 19th century. She lives today on the land that her grandfather purchased along Old Pleasanton Road more than 100 years ago. Like other folks in the area, Kathy's grandparents farmed their modest plot year-round, planting corn, watermelons, squash, onions, while experimenting occasionally with cotton, peanuts, and other more exotic crops. Kathy's grandparents, Ama and Apa, they called them, raised their children on the land, and of course those children soon grew up and began to have children of their own. For Kathy's entire childhood, her and her siblings and cousins would gather every Sunday at Ama and Apa's place to cook, eat, and play games, like cards and marbles, or canicas, as they called them in Spanish. When the kids got too rambunctious, Apa would send them down to the bend in the creek that crossed the northern edge of their property, telling them to go dig for Santa Ana's gold. He may have been partly joking, but he may not have been. The road running in front of Apa's house, Old Pleasanton Road, is the modern incarnation of the old Lower Presidio Road, which Santa Ana almost certainly traveled up more than once in his life either as a young lieutenant in General Arredondo's army in 1813, or later as the commander of his own army in 1836. Though it seems unlikely that a man as grasping as Santa Ana would have ever let much gold out of his reach, other treasures surely slipped from the hands of the many travelers who made their way up the road over the centuries, or stopped to rest in the shade of a pair of ancient oak trees growing along the road where a creek bed crossed the northern edge of Amma and Apa's property. Oh, and that creek bed, by the way, is our beloved and oft-mentioned Las Gallinas Creek. 
It's no surprise then that, according to Kathy, her and her brothers regularly found little treasures on their grandparents' farm. Old flatware, buttons, and little iron balls. The little iron balls were especially sought after because they absolutely dominated as canicas, or marbles. But over the years, as Kathy and her siblings put away childish things, the little balls got put away too, split up amongst her scattered family members, lost or tucked away into cigar boxes in the backs of closets. One day, Kathy sent me a cryptic text message proposing to meet up. We kept in touch and talked regularly, so it wasn't necessarily a surprise, but the tone of her text was definitely mysterious. Time for us to meet? You say when. You will enjoy. We set a date and met at Carolina's restaurant on 281 South at around 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. We caught up a little bit first. It had been a few months since we'd seen each other, and I had always enjoyed hearing her stories, and I updated her on how our search for the battlefield and the rest of our Medina project was coming along. Then she pulled out her little bag of treasures. First, she showed me some old newspaper articles about folks digging around for the Battle of Medina in the area. If the battle has been forgotten by the Texas population at large, these articles proved that it has never been far from the minds of residents of this area. She then showed me an old wooden spoon that she had found on her property. It looked hand-carved for sure, but I had to remind her that I wasn't an archaeologist and would have to bring someone down to really weigh in on it. Then she produced a jar of old buttons. I rustled through them a little bit, looking for buttons like the ones we had seen on the blue wing body, but again, had to confess my limitations as an appraiser of buttons as well as spoons. Kathy also pulled out an old handwritten survey map of her property. Then, a first edition of Ted Schwartz and Robert Tonoff's book about the Battle of Medina, Forgotten Battlefield, signed by Tonoff himself. She said she was thinking about selling it on eBay, but talked herself out of it in front of me there. Then, she reached down for the last object. From beneath the table, she lifted up an old Crown Royal bag, dust-covered and lumpy. It sagged unevenly toward the floor. I'll be honest with you. It reminded me a little of those rather crass objects you sometimes find dangling from certain young men's trailer hitches in our part of the world, representing that part of a bull that is most associated with his social standing. Which is my crude way of saying that the Crown Royal bag appeared to contain two weighty, round objects inside of it. Kathy handed me the bag. I was almost scared to hold it. I took it gingerly, like a child being handed a gift they didn't dare believe they'd ever receive. Supporting the purple velvet in one hand, I loosened the gold drawstring and pulled out a white handkerchief wrapped around two hidden objects, each about an inch and a half in diameter and weighing maybe a half pound. I brought my eyes to within a few inches of the balled-up handkerchief and carefully unwrapped it. Two black objects peeked out at me, one heavily pitted and slightly rusted, the other smooth, clean, and with a line around its circumference, but both perfectly spherical little balls. Are these? I started to ask her, but then stopped. I couldn't finish the question. They're canicas, she responded with a smile. Marbles. It was obvious she was joking. 
I was quite literally trembling with excitement. Thousands of mailers, hundreds of man-hours, and a few dozen false leads had led me to become skeptical that our Battle of Medina research team would ever find anything related to the battle. Or for that matter, that artifacts might even still exist. Yet here in front of me were two iron balls, one weighing 7.9 ounces, the other 9.6 ounces, that sure as heck looked like munitions. More specifically, like canister shot. Canister shot, you'll recall from the Blue Wing Burial, turned even a small cannon into a devastatingly large shotgun. And yes, the Blue Wing Burial had a lead ball, and these were iron balls, but we have records of both lead and iron being used as munitions in this campaign. And like the Blue Wing Burial, the size of these iron balls, the fact that they did seem to be canister shot sized, was particularly interesting. A musket ball could have come from any number of sources, especially along a major road like the Lower Presidio Road, and wouldn't necessarily be proof of a battle. But the last time that cannon shot had flown around this part of the world in any material quantities had been around 1813, at the Battle of Medina. When our lunch wrapped up, I hugged Kathy and thanked her. Not so much for sharing her canicas with me, but for letting me feel at least once in this project the feeling that I think fuels the archaeologists and researchers that I was imitating. The adrenaline that surged through me during lunch that day with Kathy didn't leave me for three or four days. I shared photos of the iron balls, which we've included on the Rivard Report webpage for this episode, with my wife, with my research team, and with San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Kay was the best at gently reminding me that two cannonballs don't confirm a battle site. Others, too, had found isolated artifacts, she informed me, which was actually news to me. Schwartz and Tanoff had found a rifle barrel. Robert Marshall had found a part of a bridle and a musket ball. Dan Arellano had come across a larger iron ball about four miles north of Kathy's property. Kay Hines herself even had what appeared to be a cannonball that the Encinal had produced years ago from an undetermined location. Someone had just given it to her. Yet subsequent metal detecting surveys at each of the locations where these artifacts had been found had failed to turn up any additional artifacts, much less the kind of concentration you would expect in a battle site. Still, I took these artifacts' locations and plotted them on a map. Kathy's canicas did seem pretty centrally located with respect to the other artifacts, which if you squinted your eyes, you could argue all fell within the watershed of Las Gainas Creek as well. But the more remarkable thing I noticed was the giant black hole of data sitting right on Kathy's northern fence line. For almost 100 years, the superior silica and SB sand mines located on the east side of Las Gainas Creek have produced aggregate, material for mixing with concrete and frac sand. Covering several hundred acres each, the mining operations had flattened the hills and dug out a series of pits. Water, in fact, now pooled in those areas where the sandy topsoil had been excavated down to denser lower layers. As I thought more about these sand mines, I recalled a pair of anecdotes that I had collected in the course of my interviews. Former Bear County Historical Commissioner and friend Fred Martinez told me one time 
how a rock crusher over in Poteet, Texas, used to always spit out little lead and iron balls. Daimitos, Fred and his friends called them growing up, thinking they were little old Spanish dimes. Of course, Poteet was too far away to be a likely battle site, so Fred never put much stock in that memory. But I had also listened to an interview with Jerome Corus, a longtime local resident who passed away only a few years ago, where Jerome suggested that many decades ago, the production from the sand mines along Gainas Creek had been sent to the Poteet Crusher. Canicas, daimitos, and a handful of other artifacts were all pointing in one direction now. Right at the sand mines along Gainas Creek, which parallels Old Pleasanton Road through this part of the Encinal, and which I should remind you is the modern-day incarnation of the 300-plus-year-old Lower Presidio Road. But before we started publicizing our finds, or making wild pronouncements about the battle site, San Antonio archaeologist Kay Hines encouraged me to confirm the authenticity of the iron balls we had collected. They might be 200-year-old cannonballs, but they might also just be a bunch of old cast-iron fence post caps. On July 26, 1813, the day before José Álvarez de Toledo launched his coup in San Antonio, General Arredondo began his march north from Laredo. Arredondo's army was perhaps the largest regular force that had ever set foot on Texas soil up to that time. Once Arredondo had rendezvoused with Elizondo and the other refugees from the Battle of Alasan Creek, his combined force consisted of 11 artillery pieces, 635 infantry, and 1,195 regular cavalry. Many of these men were veterans of his suppression campaigns of the previous two years in northern Mexico in which Arredondo had been as unbeaten as the Republican Army of the North. Anxious to punish the Republicans after their victory at Alasan Creek, Arredondo drove his men relentlessly through the hot, prickly South Texas plains, reducing some of them to little more than rags by the time they closed in on the Encinal de Medina. The high proportion of cavalry in Arredondo's army suggested his awareness of the mounted nature of Texas warfare. Perhaps he had been advised in this by the handful of San Antonians in his army, including Lieutenant Colonel Ignacio Perez, Lieutenant Colonel Cristobal Dominguez, Chaplain José Darío Zambrano, and the Reverend Lieutenant Colonel Juan Manuel Zambrano. Zambrano, recall, had led the counter-revolt that put down Juan Bautista de las Casas' rebellion back in Episode 2. Yet Zambrano didn't share his fellow citizens' horror at Governor Salcedo's subsequent retributions. Zambrano was an unrepentant royalist and was far more horrified by the prospect of his town falling to radicals, foreigners, and indios bárbaros. Zambrano had been the first of many royalists to try and fail to stop Gutiérrez de Lara just as he crossed the Sabine River back in episode 4. It's unclear to me if he participated in the siege of Goliad or the battles of Rocío or Alasan Creek but he did reappear on the scene in July of 1813 with Arredondo's approaching army. Arredondo welcomed Zambrano and the other prominent San Antonians by rewarding them with the rank of lieutenant colonel, which might have been his way of acknowledging how important they were to him, given his own lack of local knowledge of the area. 
Republican scouts and their Native American allies had followed his every movement up the Laredo Road, and he knew that he could very well stumble into a trap if he wasn't careful. And indeed, Zambrano, Cristobal Dominguez, and the other San Antonians in tow confirmed for General Arredondo that his current road, the old Laredo Road, funneled through the Encinal de Medina in a depression that sat 100 feet or so below the surrounding terrain. Further ahead, then, where the road crossed the Medina River itself, the topography was even more menacing. The banks of the river dropped 50 feet on either side, and there were only two spots, really, where an army with wheeled artillery and baggage trains could reliably cross. It was unquestionably unfavorable terrain for an approaching royalist army. So on the morning of August 18th, 1813, after breaking camp just north of modern-day Pleasanton, Texas, Arredondo issued a sudden change of orders, which you may remember from episode 2 when we reviewed his account. Quote, On the 18th of August, I directed my march toward the Medina River, changing the course I was on to cross the river at a different point than the direct road, owing to the fact that there was a canyon on the direct road which would have offered substantial benefit to the enemy if he were to try and set an ambush there in the thick woods that covered it. End quote. I confess, I'm still not sure which road Arredondo was on and which crossing he was now headed to. Unfortunately, neither were the Republicans camped just ahead of him. On the next Finding Medina. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to check out the webpage associated with this podcast on the Rivard Report at rivardreport.com. And please continue to leave your comments or questions for the community to see what new information we can bring out into the light about the Battle of Medina, especially if you have information that we don't. Also, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and leave a review. Because if everyone who listened to this series left a review, it would launch these important historical events to the top of the charts. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend George Gaitan for letting us use his music on this series. You can find out more about him at georgegaitan.tripod.com. Thanks to my SWCA research buddies, Crystal Allgood, Rob Lakowitz, and Zachary Overfield, as well as to former San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Thanks to Brian Stauffer, our unofficial old Spanish document transcriber, to Samantha Alanis, our cartographer-in-chief, to Cesar Gutierrez, our unofficial Archivo General de la Nación researcher, and to UTSA's Dean of Libraries, Dean Hendricks, our all-other document finder. And for more information about our podcast and other projects, check out www.brandonseal.com.